Welcome to the Naples Community Church Podcast with Pastor Kurt Anderson. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you find this sermon inspires you, builds your faith, and gives you perspective to see God moving in your life. We trust God has great things in store for you. Enjoy today's message. Well, the church is without any institutional antecedent. It is a standalone reality. And it exists in so many different forms. We, we know of the big cathedrals and all of that, but I had an occasion to visit St. Petersburg, Russia in 1990 before everything fell apart over there, or actually before everything came together over there. And I was with a small group that was meeting in a home and they had a tiny Bible and they had their icons. That's what they had and it kept, it kept them together for 70 years of, of communist rule. And that's the church. And this is the church. And the Presbyterian denomination, which, is, which is, uh, constitutes my roots, has for many decades has affirmed what are called the great ends of the church. And it, it basically constitutes statements of why we're here and what it is that we're about. And the, the first most prominent is the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ for the salvation of humankind. It's the first, that's why we're here. And in the early centuries of the church, the preaching of the word was called the kerygma. The teaching of the word was called the didache, but the kerygma, the preaching of the word, was always the pointy edge of the sword. And it was the, the primary work of the church. And, which seems a little odd, but the primary work of any organization, institution, is to talk. <laughs> That's our product. We don't, we don't make soap or cars or anything else. We, we somehow talk and God, by his work, makes disciples. So this morning I'm going to be talking about the proclamation of the word as the first great end of the church. I'm going to shorten the text a little bit so I don't lose you. <laughs> but uh, from the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 15 is the oldest written record of the resurrection. Hear the word of God as it comes to us, beginning at, first, at verse 12. Now if Christ is preached as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified of God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who've fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all men most to be pitied. May God add his understanding to this hearing of his word. In other words, if there's no resurrection, 
This is it. Nothing else. This is it. Several years ago, I was at the Louvre, which was a wonderful experience, except that I, I know about, on a scale of one to 10, about 1.3 of my knowledge of art. <laughs> but uh, I was there with my daughter, and we were walking through, and I stepped to the base of a tall staircase, and then at the top was winged Samothrace. I was stunned. I was stunned. And I don't know why. And I stood and I looked at it and I walked up the steps and I looked closer. And of course it was very familiar. We've all seen it before. Then I knew that the Mona Lisa was there at the, at the Louvre as well. And in that room were a bunch of people and they had a rope and people were standing back. And once again, I stepped in, I looked, I saw the Mona Lisa and I, I thought, well, no big deal. We're at the Louvre, I gotta see the Mona Lisa. But I was stunned. I was captured. And again, I have no idea why. Einstein, when he came up with the theory of relativity, E equals mc squared, I believe it was Einstein who said that one of, that, one of the aspects of that theory that was so captivating to him was its beauty. Beauty. Now, why is the world beautiful? Why is it that there's beauty at all? Why is it that we are captivated by something outside of ourselves that gives us an experience that we didn't try to have, we didn't work it up, it wasn't anything conjured? Even this morning, driving down to work, I heard Swan Lake on one of the radio stations. Once again, beauty is captivating. Well, this is a common human experience, the experience of beauty. And all of human life, in all cultures, in all places, in all times, there have been people who have been trying to understand and articulate what this life is really all about and what its, what its meaning is, what its purpose is. And it's that, that which is beyond our access that they write about. And so all over the world we have what's called human wisdom. And I would say that all the religions of the world constitute the collection of the wisdom of that particular people. And it's a wisdom that we can all share together. It's a wisdom that we can affirm. Just because it's Buddhist or Muslim, Jewish, or whatever it may be, we can affirm the commonality of human wisdom. But that's the stuff of religion. And it only, it only goes so deep. The human mind can only explain so much. The human experience can only identify so much. And so yes, we have wisdom and the great voices and the great artists and the great thinkers of all time have essentially come up with this body that constitutes human wisdom and so much of life 
is trying to understand and enter into that wisdom. But then comes the Apostle Paul. He says, the wisdom of this world is foolishness to God. That the cross of Christ is a scandal and a stumbling block. And the, the reality of who Jesus is and what Jesus did is, is horrific. The sacrifice, the death that he died. And how do we understand God giving his son as a sacrifice for us? So there's a a reality, a shared reality of human wisdom. And then tapping down way deep below it is the inbreaking of the reality of God. The coming of Christ. We find that therein is the ultimate source, not just of all of that wisdom that is inspired by these experiences of beauty and, and love, but it is the source of it all. It's the ultimate source of, of all those realities that we experience on a shallower level. So the work of the church is to bear witness to that deepest reality, a gift that God has, has given to us. So the work of the church is to make a proclamation. The proclamation of the good news. And the proclamation, the preaching, is always something that is already accomplished. God did this. God created, we fell, God redeems, and Christ will return again. That's the basic thrust of the church's preaching for 2,000 years. And it hasn't changed much. And it, in our time when we have a growingly secular context and community of, of, of people here in our country and the Western world, it sounds more and more scandalous as time goes by. It sounds like the wisdom of the world, which doesn't seem all that wise oftentimes, but the wisdom of the world is winning. And that we're we're sounding kind of dumb. Because faith constitutes something that, that cannot be proved. In our current time, that which cannot be proved is considered to be superstition. And therefore, by sleight of hand, bias. So people of faith are being marginalized as those who are biased. That's why I hate the fact. I've always considered myself an evangelical. But now that term has been hijacked by the political world and it's now a political category. That's not what it's about. An evangelical is somebody who loves the Lord. Somebody who, who honors what God has done and wants other people to know what that's all about. 
And so the church has for the last 2,000 years, when it's been at its best, has simply proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not politics, not self-help. Tony Robbins is not a preacher. Not all that stuff, but that which we cannot accomplish on our own. And that is the reality of God coming to us. There was a great theological debate in the middle of the 20th century between Paul Tillich and Karl Barth, these great theologians. One, of course, I think was greater than the other, and that was Karl Barth over Paul Tillich. <laughs> but Tillich was offer, ar arguing that, you know, why do we need sermons? Why not just music and art and architecture? He was pointing to that reality of beauty. Why not that? Why do we have to have the sermon? Why do we have to have preaching? Karl Barth's response, classic. He said, well, God can speak through art. He can speak through architecture. God can speak through Russian communism. He can speak through a dead dog. And we do well to listen when he does. The question is not what can God speak through, but what has God ordained? And what he has ordained is his word, the word of God. So the church is about the business, the scandalous work of proclamation, making a declaration. So when preachers like me get up and say, God created the heavens and the earth. Jesus rose from the dead. I can't prove it. And what constitutes proof? Frederick Beekner argues that if God decided he could take the Milky Way and rearrange it and have the words written up in the sky for all of us to see, I really exist. And if one night he rearranged the universe to say, I really exist, We'd all be amazed, it'd be astonishing. And then every night as the stars came out and those words were there, well, over a period of time, it would become ho-hum. Let months pass and then years. And then in time, there must be some natural explanation for all of this. There must be some reason for this beyond this stuff about God. That's our nature. We will always try to find some way to explain it away, but, but faith cannot be proved. If it were provable, it wouldn't be faith. If we could close the gap on our understanding, there'd be no reason for us to trust or to believe. Then it's just knowledge, and knowledge is boring. Two plus two equals four. Once we got it, we got it, and we move on from there. But faith is not that which is proved. Faith is that which is proclaimed. And so week after week, preachers all over the world for 2,000 years, we keep striking the flint. Week after week, striking the flint. And we hope that something catches fire. The great revivals of the 19th century 
surprise those preachers who were doing it. They were just striking the flint. And suddenly, a fire broke out. The work of the Spirit. Week after week, preachers, when they're staying to the work of the church, making declaration of the good news with the sincere longing and hope that people will have that fire awaken in their own hearts. Do what they do week after week. And every now and then, something happens. Something is ignited in the human heart. I've shared with you before, uh, when I was a kid at Forest Home in Southern California, I have no idea what the preacher said. But he was preaching, he was faithful, and something happened. It wasn't what he said, it's what the Spirit did. And something was ignited in me. I went up to the chapel, prayed that God would, Christ would come into my life to be my Lord and Savior, then went down to the fellowship hall where everyone's playing pool and eating ice cream and all that sort of thing. And, and I was changed. What has God ordained but the preaching of the word, the proclamation of the word? And as we come together in worship, really what we ought to be asking ourselves is what is God saying to me? What might the Lord ignite in me? Is there some dry tinder in my heart that the Lord might ignite so that I might be that much more His, that I might be that much more transformed and by that refining fire burning within me, burn off the dross of my sin and bad attitudes and all that sort of thing and be ever more His. And in our time, typically, so many go to church to assess whether the music is good enough. It is. <laughs> the preaching's holding up. So-so. Uh, the, the attitude that somehow we have our performers and then our audience. But instead, it's all of us before God. All of us before God with our hearts open to Him that He might change us. Me, that he might have his way with us. And as a pastor, I have no way of knowing. One dear woman walked in this morning, said she remembers me telling a story about my father and how he wanted a particular flashlight so that he could read his Bible with it. And that ignited something in her. These accounts, these stories of faith, when I was at the household of the Reeds and I saw these dear people, this family, and I saw mom there on the bed dying, it ignited something in me. And I, I was so touched and moved by the love of this family and of Barbara 
And the Lord does this. It's the Spirit's work. It's not something we do, we conjure up, we blend up and, and then put it out there. The work of the church is the proclamation of the good news of the salvation of humankind. Toward the end, as the Apostle Paul put it, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth to the glory of God the Father. We bow with me in prayer. Oh, Father, we tend to ignore that dry stuff in us, but you don't. You send your fire. And we, we douse it with water. So often we don't want to be changed. But you transform us according to your will. Have your way with us, O oh Lord. And when you do, we find in that place of humility and joy, we find true, true, deep happiness and beauty. Thank you in the name of your Son, our Savior Christ, who did this for us. Amen. If you enjoyed today's podcast, there are a few things you can do. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. For more information, you can visit us online at www.naplescommunitychurch.org. If you happen to be visiting Naples, please drop in for our Sunday service at 10 a.m. We'd love to meet you. Thanks again for joining us. Have a fabulous day.